You're listening to Stay Last. Hey, good evening, guys. Um, we're here on Stay Last Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you guys. It's just been a blessing. Sean, known you for a long, long time. Zumi, just met you tonight. We just thank you for your time and coming out, both you guys. It's an absolute pleasure to have you all here. Fumi. Fumi, not Zumi. It is Fumi. Fumi. That's an awesome name. (laughs) All right, off to a good start. Off to a good start. (laughs) Fumi, not Zumi. (laughs) No, um, I'm glad that you guys guys are here, too. This is cool because um, Sean... I grew up with Sean. He was, when I was in youth group, he was one of our youth leaders. So I've known Sean a long time. And Fumi, um, the, the, they were part of Local Color, which is, can you describe Local Color in like a couple sentences? In a couple sentences? That's tough, but. Uh, okay, four sentences. <laughs> so the essence of Local Color was um, the person who founded it is founded through the Village Square, uh, which is a not-for-profit here in Tallahassee. And uh, they began to see where our nation was split along um, especially racial lines and that uh, whenever something would flare up in pop culture um, what ends up happening in our social media age is everyone runs to their respective tribe and then just firebombs one another and it exacerbates problems Um, there's certainly no healing that takes place we just become more and more fractured Um, so the idea was to intentionally draw together a group of people from diverse uh, racial, cultural, socioeconomic backgrounds to pretty much just get to know each other and build real relationships um, so that when something does happen, there's already a group of people who have a base level of understanding of the shoes that one another has walked in. So when everybody's freaking out, um, the idea is that we can come forward and begin to provide some leadership or demonstrate how to have civil dialogue and engagement about tough issues. So that's well, not a couple sentences, but that's no, that's and, and beautiful. Make it. And it's perfect too because when you told you told me about it, you described it to me like that. Um, I went to, I was able to attend the, the meeting um, in in October where you know the Colin Kaepernick issue was kind of the yeah. uh, the subject. But what I really loved about it was exactly how you described it is exactly how it was. I mean, it was it was one of the most productive and. Uh, it was it was such a laid back environment, but it was productive. Everybody was able to really articulate their thoughts, but people were actually listening, which I thought was really which was different. And it's it was interesting to me because I noticed when people are kind of face to face and you're having to actually give your ideas to you know your opposing idea to the person that's right in front of you, everybody tends to fall in a little bit more towards the middle. It's not you know these these extreme um, viewpoints really weren't didn't seem to be. Uh, being pushed out, and I thought that the young lady that um, that uh, who was the young lady that uh, that hosted it, what was or uh, facilitated it, or oh, Vita, yeah, mm-hmm. she did a great job setting it up. I mean, it was it was it was outstanding. I loved it. I wanted to go back to the one in November. I forgot you have to actually get tickets to yeah, these things, even though they're out. free, yeah, and it was sold out. It's not really the ticket thing; is just for us to measure how many people will show up. But he so was, I could, he went really to get a, a ticket. They, they didn't have any. Left. They were sold out. I didn't know if I could just show up. I would have just shown. Oh up. yeah, you should. And uh, and the room actually wasn't even full, so I don't know how it is that the tickets were sold out. Yeah, never oh. let that. Keep okay, you well, I'll be there for sure. Okay, then. is there is there um is there a December? I think uh, so. gathering do something yeah. through the. I there's a website. Okay, I don't know the web. Maybe somebody can look it up while we're here. Yeah, you go, it's um, on the Village Square's website, which is, I believe, tlh.villagesquare.us. Okay. Yeah. 
So they have a, a listing of um, the programs for this season. And then the other thing that I really love about um, the Village Square, obviously its main mantra is to gather people um, from different backgrounds and across the political spectrum together um, to talk about, you know, those divisive issues and the things, you know, they tell you not to talk about at the dinner table. Right. Religion, politics, race. Um, and there are different programs that the Village Square puts on. For example, the God Squad. So the God Squad um, is people from different, I guess, religious persuasions. Uh, but really, it's mostly Christians and the rabbi. <laughs> so um, that's the only representation, I guess, that's on that that uh, panel. They get together and talk about issues, religious issues. Uh, recently, when the whole um, where was this in Pittsburgh? Where the shooting happened in the synagogue. The synagogue, yeah, yeah. yeah um, they gathered, you know, um, to talk about that, and that was very, very interesting. And I think it's really when things go down, either in our nation or locally, to have a, a group or an organization that helps to facilitate a conversation to across you know boundaries and to model for the rest of the community how it is and our goal is that if we do have these conversations if or rather when something goes down in our communities um, we will not all just again as uh, sean was saying run to our different tribes and just pelt each other with words or god forbid with fire real firebombs um, but we can have a place where we can gather and have real conversations Nice. The program kind of kicked off faster than really any of us had expected. Um, we had started with having a couple um, kind of underground gatherings of people who were, you know, kind of understood the objectives. And mm -hmm. we were having, we'd had just two preliminary meetings when Charlottesville happened. Oh, wow. And then all of a sudden, you know, kind of the alarm went off and, you know, it was no longer a drill. It was a, it was a real thing. And, um, and so things kind of um, launched faster than originally anticipated, but, um, but we, we feel like it's, you know, it's certainly not, it, it, these aren't issues that are going to be solved overnight. I mean, we've been grappling with these for the 200 plus years that we've existed as a nation, but um, I, I, I am encouraged by some of the conversations that we're having and some of the, the little bit of impact that I, I think is possible within, you know, within this community. The other thing I really appreciate, having been part of, of the organization now for just a couple of years, is the uh, connections that we've been able to make um, from it. I don't know if it was low color. It wasn't that our first interaction, me and you, Sean. I think that was something else. We have some common friends, but yeah, we have. You know, the, okay. the first time that I really had opportunity to, to spend time with Fumi or his lovely wife was really through local color. Right. There's that, and then even um, after what is that event that we had at the moon? Um, mm. It was. Same premise. It's called Created Equal. It was yeah. put on in collaboration with the county. And so from there, we've what's happened, it's not just, you know, these panelists or facilitators. What's happening actually in the community and the people who are coming is that now they're gathering in their groups and, and continuing these conversations. So I can I, I know for certain there was one group um, that uh, a table from that uh, event uh, that has continued meeting uh, on a semi-regular basis and gathering for lunch and just continuing the conversation that started a year ago mm -hmm. um, from that specific event. So we're seeing real um, impact in, in the community and, and people who otherwise would not know each other, talk less, even talk to each other, are, are coming together. Nice. That's, 
um, some of these issues, like Zach was at the meeting with the Capper, the y'all were speaking on the Kaepernick issue. Is that is that a important issue to either for for you guys? Like, does that hit home? Are you passionate about this this issue? Is patriotism? Well, it was interesting because uh, at the last event, mm-hmm. um, I think for most people to to look at Fumi and I and guess where we were going to fall on the issue, um, we both kind of took slightly different tacks uh, on the subject than than people might, you know generalize at first blush um you know i I don't know that for me personally that the issue of kaepernick is a terrifically compelling one but it's indicative of things that are happening in our community right now and um i I think it's it's easy to take events like that when they bubble up to the surface and uh, immediately people clamor for them and try to use them to advance their own agenda or you know squash someone else's but um, but I think those things are happening. If people are looking, these things are happening all the all over the place all the time. Um, maybe not on as large a stage as uh, an NFL football game, but um, but there are people who are taking a stand for what they believe in, you know, all the time. Right now, as panelists on um, as panelists on that stage, obviously you guys were giving your opinions. But was were you, were you taking were you taking like any kind of a pre-planned angle just to kind of bring another side to the conversation, or was everything like I mean were you going at it with exactly 100% the way you felt, or were you or were you trying to kind of just you know diversify the opinion on the panel a little bit? I'm by nature a curmudgeon and a um, a sort of what's the word I'm looking for, Sean. Cantankerous, cantankerous, <laughs> um, but but just um, I play against type, uh, and mm-hmm. I I don't say that as a sort of like, oh, um, you know, I, by my my tent making job or by trade I'm a lawyer and I argue for a living, but I don't say that as it means like you know just to be argument argumentative for argumentative sake, but really, uh, oftentimes I like to to take people outside of their comfort zone. Uh, I'm also a teacher. I teach um, a young adult, college, um, youth um, um, in, in my church. So uh, one thing, my, my approach to, to scripture and my teaching style is that I want to challenge preconceived notions about, you know, some of these shibboleths that we have either in culture or in church or what have you. Um, so I might take a position, well, while I might not feel particularly strongly about that position, like for example, Kaepernick, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have any really strong feelings about him. I could see the argument from both sides, really, honestly. Um, and I can argue both sides. So, uh, sometimes I do find myself on the panel, arguing you know one side while really just i'm just really middle of the road but i can make a a, right. a, a compelling you can, argument right you know they, yeah, yeah. and that's not to say that i don't believe that argument it's just to you know one challenge people's preconceived notions about the way things are supposed to be or what they think think the way things are um and and i do that in in many situations um but you know, some people could look at that and say, "Oh, well, you're just being, a, you know, devil's advocate," as, mm-hmm. as the as the saying goes, um, that you don't really believe that. I, I don't think I wouldn't be able to to argue the point if I don't have some 
modicum of belief in that position, right? Right. Um, so I have to have some, at least some level of like, this is a right position to argue for me to make the argument uh, forcefully and compelling. Right? Okay. Because it was a, I'm not a, I'm not a football person and I didn't even know it was going on or what was even happening, but I was living in Denver at the time. So there's a lot of pro football fans and people were coming to church and, and boycotting any NFL gear and doing all this stuff, um, these Christians were coming in, like, my whole wardrobe is all Denver Broncos and NFL gear, and we're just getting rid of it all. And it always was just, it was very strange to me because they had never, they boycotted this, I, I see this a little bit of this idolatry and patriotism here in the United States, and I think, you know, a love for a country is, is a great thing, but I think it can very, very easily become... Uh, patriotism is, becomes an idol, and we see it in the church constantly. Um, I see it placed over God constantly, and they were getting rid, and they were they were boycotting NFL gear. But I asked the man, "Have you ever boycotted? Did you boycott Nike when they were using sweatshops? I mean, when they were, you know, was but just because someone messed with your flag or or did not stand up to your flag, that you're going to boycott all this gear? But there's literally people suffering, suffering in sweatshops, and you're okay with supporting that." But your patriotism, I mean, biblically, biblically, it didn't seem to weigh out for me when I would see that. I saw this, saw this idolatry of patriotism coming to the surface of what we really care about. Well, with switch shops, it's farther away from them. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, there's no real sort of investment or connection to that community or to that people group. And, and you know, out of sight, out of mind. That's mostly the way many of us live our lives. Um, if, it's, if it doesn't really affect us in the media, either our pocketbook, our families, our direct communities, then, you know, it's it's not uh, paramount to us. Um, but I do, back to your, your previous question about uh, what are we passionate about these issues, with, with regards to Kaepernick, um, just that specific situation or topic, not so much, but what I'm passionate about, and also I've seen Sean's passion, is about the issue of racial reconciliation, and especially racial mm -hmm. reconciliation within the American church. I am very passionate about that. I'm very passionate about um, the gospel implications mm -hmm. of, of unity and diversity within the body of Christ. Um, so that that's one thing I, I'm passionate about. I think about uh, a lot. I write about. I comment about. I teach about. You know, when it comes up, you know, it's not all. It's sometimes you know, black folk get uh, marked for is everything really about race? On one hand, yes, and on the other hand, no. Um, no, in the sense that. Yeah, our, our lives are are just as nuanced and complex and as as rich, you know, with the same way as any other people group or ethnicity in this country. But our lives, um, especially speaking specifically for Black folk, African Americans, and people Af Afro and um, African and Afro Caribbean descent, in many ways, are defined by our color and by our race within the American context, right? So that mm -hmm. I can't get away from my blackness. And when someone looks at me, that that forms their perception of who I am. Whether, you know, you, you admit it or not, that that, oh, that it just is because this country has been inculcated over centuries, you know, um, of what 
uh, blackness is or even what whiteness is and all of that. And, and then knowing that this country itself was formed and built upon um, a racial caste system, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's a difference between, oftentimes we try to talk about American exceptionalism. It's different from the old country, old Europe, yes. and that we don't have those class issues, you know, that Europe had. But we have a different set of caste system. It's based on race, maybe not on class per se, although even that itself is is intertwined in all of it. Um, but uh, it, it, it touches on issues of patriotism, on how we, we see scripture, or how we see Christianity, or even how Christianity developed in this country. All those that our lives in many ways are, are formed or informed by race and ethnicity in this country. Well, Dang. with... Um that that kind of brings me to a question for you. Um, I've had we actually had a pastor here that said it, and I've heard other pastors say this. You know, and um, especially here in the South, you know, the the most segregated day um, is Sunday. You know, mm-hmm. and um, you, we see in Tallahassee, um, you have a, mostly your churches are going to be predominantly white or predominantly black. We do see a few churches that have a pretty um, a pretty good mix of people. But um, I mean, do you think that's that that Sunday segregation is indicative of a bigger problem, or do you think that um, that's that's just part of the culture of the South, and you know we should we should but, all kind of just accept that, understand that, right. and be okay with that? There are two issues, of course, with um, the question of multi ethnicity within uh, the body within the church. Um, obviously, knowing the history of race uh, and racism within this country, knowing the history of the development of the black church within this country. The black church wasn't because, you know, black folk wanted to just be by themselves. The black church was as a necessity and outgrowth of racism, right? Mm-hmm. And the definition, or, or rather even the, 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 the making or the divining of race, because Oftentimes we look at the problem as racism, but really mm-hmm. the issue is race. It's a, that that race that we think that um, what's what's how am I trying to say it? that racism caused, or rather that race caused racism, right? That's right. one way leads to the other. But no, race uh, racism created race, right? And really, greed created race. So mm-hmm. uh, a, a great book on this is the. Um, Baptism of Early Virginia. The author is escaping me right now. Essentially, she talks about how um, race as a concept was developed in in Christian uh, colonial Virginia, and how you know black folk were suddenly not allowed to be baptized in in order again to rationalize um, the degradation and the um, and objectification of a people, of a people group, and, and making them into property, into chattel, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how you got, you you know, defining even whiteness. Like, wh- white as a, as, a, as a term or as a race or whatever wasn't a concept be- before the 17th century, right? Mm-hmm. Is when you see in the new world, you know, white suddenly now start getting defined, and then white defined over against black, right? Um, so, it, it, back to the question about the development of Christianity in this country and the development of you know ethnically defined churches was because of race and racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now, as as the outgrowth of that, that the black church um, and the role it's played within the black community as a, as a um, not just a place of worship and a center of all these different things, but also a place of of safe haven, 
right? A, a place where folks, a community center, find jobs, connection. Uh, when you had the Great Migration in um, uh, early 19th century, people were trying to flee from Jim Crow and post-World War II, the Great Migration, churches uh, became the community centers up north in Illinois, Chicago, um, in Detroit. Churches became the center where, you know, folks come into this new community, they could ask about jobs, childcare, what they can do, other things. So churches have played a major role in the black community. And of course, we know the role that the church played in the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. right? So all of that now in today's context, well, does the black church still have that kind of role um, to play in quote unquote post-racial? And I use scare quotes and it's audio. I don't know if this is also video. It is. Um, <laughs> that, um, in a post-racial society, what is the role of the black? And of course, this question also comes like, what's the role of HBCUs? What's the role of, you know, affirmative action and things then the third, right? Um, obviously, we know that we are not post-racial and racism still very much exists in our, in our country, in our communities, um, that the black church still has a role to play, especially in, over this last couple uh, of months when we've, we're trying to divine what is the social gospel, what is the gospel, mm. what is you know activism like, and that whole debate that's going on in American evangelicalism. Mm. Um, so the role of of uh, these ethnically defined churches, um, do they still play that role? Do they still have a role? Do they still have a prophetic voice? You know, within the American uh, culture and American evangelicalism, I think they do for a myriad of reasons, um, but. To the question of multi, I'm sorry, it's taking a long time. No, the question great. of multi-ethnic churches, it, it, we really have to look at each community, right? So if a church is in a community or in a city or in a setting where it is diverse, right? Where it's it's a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic community, that does raise a question for me is that does that church reflect the community in which it's centered in, right? Mm. Um, so if it doesn't, if you have a church that you know, you have a multicultural or maybe a Hispanic majority community. Let's say you're in Miami, right? You're in a place mm -hmm. where it's a Hispanic majority community, but your church is all white. That's a problem. First of all, that means your church is dying because you're you're not um, the the you're not getting new members, right? Either the members are driving in from the burbs or whatnot, and they they're not getting involved in the life of the church. That means right. you're not evangelizing. You're not going out sure. and affecting, right? And the, the role of the church as that light within darkness, mm -hmm. city upon a hill, that means you're not playing that role. That means you are not being the light within that community and drawing, raising up Christ to draw people in, the people in your community. So mm -hmm. there's that question. If you are actually, if the church is actually in a multicultural, multi-ethnic place setting, it should reflect that, that makeup in the church as well. But hey, mm -hmm. if the church is like, in the middle of Cornfield, Iowa, where right, right. 90% of the population is white, I'm not going to say, oh, you must you know, diversify and whatnot. No, you reflect the makeup of your community. So you have a mostly white church. But then the, the other side, the flip side of that, of that thing is like, well, in the context even of multicultural, multi-ethnic communities, do these... Um, uh, mono-ethnic cultures still have a role to play, right? Mm -hmm. So can we still have a black church in a multi-ethnic, multicultural community? Can we still have a Hispanic church or Asian church or a white church? And we've been chewing on some of these issues. Um, 
we've had um, as an offshoot from local color. There's a group of us that have started getting together like once a month for lunch. Um, the common factor is uh, th there's probably about nine of us that, that have been meeting. Um, we're all believers. Um, we come from uh, white churches, black churches, you know, mixed churches by Tallahassee standards. Um, but we're coalescing around this idea of, you know, okay, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what are the implications of the gospel for the topic of race? And, you know, for my black brothers that are part of this, you know, this is something that they've, you know, from cradle has been part of their life. But, you know, right. for guys like me, uh, I'm, you know, admittedly, you know, just kind of late to the party. And this is this is a new world of, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm realizing that, that, that there's a whole life, uh, you know, whole perspective that I've not, it's not that I haven't seen it or, or I just, I never even cared to try. Okay. And, um, and and had to grapple with that of realizing that that, that there's. Um, I wanted to ask you that, that sure. specific thing. Um, you're both brilliant. I love I love hearing you speak. So, wh what what change? What what is what made that change for you to start? I mean, you weren't always the same. You know, God's been working in you. Um, you you know, I had no idea. You know, you even felt some of the ways you did. You do. And when I hear you speak, it's super refreshing, both of you guys. And so what, what brought you to that? What made you start thinking, like, even even searching out to even just try to feel or understand or sympathize with this different perspective? For me, it was um, just kind of a slow challenging. Um, I, I, I honestly, I came to the first local, local color event um, kind of kicking and screaming. Uh, one of my partners at work had nudged me to go. I didn't want to go. She was like, I really think you should go. I went and, and enjoyed the conversation. You know, wasn't sure if I was going to come back. Came back to okay. the second one, enjoyed it again. And by the second, um, by the second meeting, I started getting to know a couple of people in there. You know, Fumi and his wife. You know, among those, and uh, real, natural, organic relationship came from that. You know, I did mm. not choose to become friends with Fumi and his wife because they are black, but but they are. And so through that friendship, um, when you spend time with other people who have come from a different background than you do, you know, you begin to see things and think about things that just never really dawned on you before. Whether they should have is, is something altogether different, but, but it just hadn't. And through spending time with them, and, you know, they have two awesome, you know, energetic young boys and watching them interact with their children you know, I have kids and looking at their kids while we're having dinner and realizing that there's just, you know, there's elements of their lives that they're going to have to think about things that my children will never have to consider. And the severity of that, I mean, it just, it, it, it fell heavy on me. And uh, as I sat, you know, next to um, their son, Timmy, and realized that, man, there's just, there's conversations that Fumi has to have with his boys that I, I never have to have with mine. I never have to, you know, with my kids, I talk about, okay, if you get pulled over by the police, you know, you be respectful, and that's it. You know, but there's, it goes to a whole other level, you know, for uh, a black father talking with his black sons. And, um, and just so through that relationship and through others that I have come into relationship with through Local Color, it's caused me to examine aspects of my life differently it's caused me to look at areas of scripture and to begin to question okay as as a follower of christ what is demanded of me 
with my station in life, with the voice that I have, with the responsibility and the authority that I carry in my circles to, to stand with those in the community who don't maybe have the same voice and, and, to, uh, and to demand justice, to demand equality, um, especially in the light of the gospel. That's well, that, beautiful. One of the things you, when you kind of brought up the different conversations you're gonna have, you would have to have with your son. Um, the, what I thought was interesting, or what I kind of uh, maybe didn't really understand about the the, the local color, you know, we were, like you said, we we're, we we're talking about the Kaepernick thing, and I don't, I don't believe him kneeling is. is I, I agree with you. It, it's not compelling. To That's, me. Yeah. I think it's Swear. kind of, you know, I, I almost felt like. Well, you know, we're losing sight of what the, the the entire issue of kneeling was about something that I, you know, I, I do believe deserves a conversation. But everybody's all twisted up about uh, this guy taking a knee, uh, you know, should he or shouldn't he, you know, the American flag, you know. But uh, it was a vet that told him to do it. And, you know, and I, I'm like, OK, but. The real the real conversation that was that that Kaepernick was trying to evoke was, you know, the the injustices of the police towards, you know, towards black people or the, the, the senseless killing or whatever, you know, all that was in there for that. Um, I mean, do you, was that even for that meeting? Was that, was that ever going to be the, a topic of discussion? I mean, I never, I never saw it go there. Everybody really stuck to just this guy taking a knee. And the reason it's not compelling is because he is within 100% of his American rights to take a knee. I mean, like, I don't really know what the argument is. Like you may not like it. So what? But um, but but you may not like it. You may like it. You may not care. You may care. But really, it's like okay, he did it, and I feel like he's he's within his rights to do it. He's not in jail for doing it. He was, you know, he's 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 an American. He's got that freedom. But the conversation that he was really trying to get people to have, I, I felt like never never was had. Everybody was so focused on right. you know the I one think issue. People got too offended, and I'm a vet as well. We're both veterans. I was never offended in any way by this any way shape or form and i think it how I think do you think that played out it goes to just um the idea that we're not comfortable having that conversation so the the underlying reason for how why he was kneeling um is definitely have happening in some quarters but generally um we sort of America is always in the way it's dealt with its its original sin in this great problem this question of of race is that it's sort of just ignored, especially in the modern context. It's kind of just let's move on, right? Uh, or if there's something else to kind of create a straw man around to to knock down disrespecting right. the flag and patriotism, you mm-hmm. know, a, a lot of the feedback was like, yeah, I see why he's kneeling, but because he's kneeling, I completely ignore um, the reason for him to be kneeling. Like you could protest in a different context, but you know that's that's itself not really. If you look at the history of. Uh, black protests in this country and just protests in general, that itself is not true. What, what form of protest is palatable you know, to the white majority? It's not kneeling. It's not marching peacefully. It's definitely not you know, rioting. So um, wh- what? <laughs> by, by what means to <laughs> protest? Well, that's um, and, and, and that's, a, you know, that, that's a, a larger question, but I think to your, to your point about we're not even talking about the underlying issue, it's because we don't want to talk about the underlying issue. We'll rather, you know, set up a straw man and knock that down easily and ignore mm-hmm. uh, um, the the larger malaise, um, racial malaise that is in this country and just kind of talk about any and everything else 
but that. Right. Well, and, and that's why, I mean, I, I love that meeting because I loved how everybody was finding, or most people in that room were finding common ground, I think, and we were able to hear those sides. But I did feel like the bigger conversation was getting missed, you know, and a lot of it was just, we were really hitting on like the, 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 the like you said, the straw man of him just kneeling. And that was the topic of conversation. And so what, what, how do we, how do we keep, how do we keep things back? How do we get things back to those the real conversations? I think so. So the local color meetings, when we have those public forums, I almost see those as as teasers. Like my big takeaway, what I'm looking for from an event like that is mm -hmm. to infect people. I want them to go and to do that because even when we were preparing for that panel, the discussion we had a few days before when we, you know the group of us got together just to kind of figure out, okay, what bases do we want to cover? You know, where do people fall on this issue? Just to make sure that we kind of have an idea of where we're going to end. Okay. You know, we don't want to just wander aimlessly, especially right. because any of these events can go sideways real quick and you don't want to have a situation on your hands. So, right. um, situation where Sean will have to pull out his gun. Oh man. <laughs> Theoretically, if <laughs> Theoretic. I had one. Theoretic. If he had one, that'd be scary. Right. Yeah. Um, but the conversations we have when it's just us is always, more passionate and more compelling than when we are on a stage with spotlights in front of a room full of people. Um, we have a tendency, no matter how much we try not to, you know, to be on our best behavior. And mm. you can't Except have for me. You all even. left me out of front. So we agreed. Well, yeah, let me just add. Uh, <laughs> we agreed at the pre-meeting that, yeah, we're going to go hard and be passionate and hold our positions. And then we get to on stage and everybody kind of just mellowed out. And I'm like, wait. What happened, guys? <laughs> I'm out front, and everybody's like, no, it's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Sorry, keep going. But I think, you know, <laughs> you want to talk about, like, the real hard conversation that, that, that we didn't have, you know, at the forum is – we don't ha we're not having the same conversations. You have groups of people yelling about the same topic, mm -hmm. but we're not talking about the same things. So Kaepernick kneels, and he says it's for Reason X. And then you have a huge contingency of veterans who are extremely angry, and for their reason of expressing anger, I can understand it. And they say, well, well, he's disrespecting why. And Kaepernick clarifies, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for this. Right. And their response is, no, it's, it has to be that because that's what I'm saying. And so they're having these two conversations. And in the middle, what gets missed is the, the, probably the worst part of it, in that there is a large contingency in America that still holds the position that they look at Colin Kaepernick and deep down in a place that they won't say out loud, they just want that black boy to be appreciative of the opportunity that he has that they don't have, and he just needs to be grateful and do his job and, and play just, ball. Exactly. And and, and it's, it's rooted in this, and it's not just race. It also has to do with just jealousies and envy and all of everything else. But that is what it encapsulates it. That is the, is the cherry on top. Mm. You know, had he been a white player, it would not have been the same. Um, you know, um, people hold up Tim Tebow as, you know, the equal but opposite version of that. Um, the same people didn't have a problem with Tim Tebow doing it um, he, because, well, the way he was doing it, he was doing it to your honor to God. Well, it's still, it really comes down to they, they happen to like his reason and not like the other person's right. reason. It's, mm -hmm. either, it's either allowed or it's not allowed. And both sides have a tendency to be duplicitous when it comes mm -hmm. to things like this. The people who love Tebow hated Kaepernick. The people who supported Kaepernick hated Tebow. Mm. Um, people, you know. We can't just love them both. <laughs> Is is do you or think this has roll. to do with the age of anti intellectualism? 
I mean, with not it's critical thinking, because we're not taught in school to critically think. As we know it's a filtration system. We know it's you jump through these hoops. Do you think a lot of this has to do with people just not being able to, not critically thinking about the actual issues? I mean, that's probably a component of it, combined with a, a few other factors. We have the, the compounding issue of uh, a generation that has grown up, of which I'm you know, on the tail end of, mm -hmm. that has been sheltered and told that you know, you're special, you're unique, everything that you say and think matters. Mm. And, and they no longer, people can no longer accept contrarian viewpoints and just let it go. Like you and I can have different opinions on an issue and still be friends. Like I don't have to convince you of my way or vice versa. Um, I mean, that's, I think, a, a big factor in it. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I, I still, I believe that many people are still critically thinking. I think what they're thinking of or the conclusion that they draw or the thought they come up with, I think people are afraid to say it because mm -hmm. you, 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 you get chastised. I mean, for instance, um, I'm just pulling an example. You, uh, with in light of what happened at the border yesterday with, you know, you could, you could have a opinion on, border law and border policy and you can agree with it and say i do agree that we need to have laws at the border i do agree that we need to have certain policies i do i do agree that there needs to be a process for people to come into this country mm -hmm. but immediately you're a racist you're a trumpist and you hate all people that are trying to migrate into the united yeah. states there's with, no room left for nuance there's a purity test applied to everything and you're either all in or you're all out but mm -hmm. so, so i do think there are people that are still critically thinking i just think the things that they say sometimes mm -hmm. they're, they're you're not you don't want to say it you're, you're too afraid to say it because you get labeled and you get you get completely uh, disqualified everything you have to say gets disqualified but even to that to that question of critical thinking and intellectualism or anti-intellectualism i think there there is a problem wherein folks are operating from false premises right of mm -hmm. course if you have a false premise that leads you to a conclusion mm -hmm. you know that and that you might hold firm to that conclusion but your premise initially was wrong right so what 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 is the the basis of the argument for you know either uh, um, our immigration um, laws and, and just the way uh, our immigration framework is, mm -hmm. or even the basis of the argument about the issues of race in this country, right? One thing I've found is definitely a strain of anti-intellectualism, um, not in the sense of folks are not thinking critically, but really that folks are really ignorant um, about many of these topics, that we, we, don't, mm. we don't teach a lot, you know, of... of on many of these in terms of, of our civics class, you know, uh, just going back to on the issue of race, we, maybe you have one chapter or half a chapter on the transatlantic slave trade, and then maybe you have another half a chapter on the civil rights movement and everything, you know, and that's it, right? That's it. And, and even we, all that gets saved for February. Right. Even yeah. all that's in February. And then there's, and when you talk about history or, or black history, that's a niche, mm -hmm. you know, of American history. Instead of understanding black history as part, that is American history, right? right? Yes. It's part and parcel of that and weaving into that. How little people know, actually, mm -hmm. of the history of race and racism in this country. How little people know about going back to the flag, like flag laws, you know, about mm -hmm. what you can do with that, the actual flag code that you can't wear it, you know, on, on a t-shirt, you can't have it on a napkin, you right. can't, you know, can't you can't touch the ground. You can't touch the ground, you can't hold it a certain way. Like there there are many ways that we're breaking exactly. the flag code 
but yet they want to fight good. on the knee thing, right? There are many things in terms of uh, immigration. Yeah, I, I believe in having actual laws. I'm an immigrant, right? right? I came to this country from West Africa at the age of eight. I believe in following the law. And also as a Christian, of course, we believe in following the law, but we also believe in compassion. Absolutely. We also yes. believe when the scripture talks about, you know, th there are three categories of people that God repeatedly held his people to account for. That is the orphan, the widow, and the alien. Mm -hmm. Those three come up again and again and again. Whenever God was mad uh, at Israel, phew. it was because of the way they treated the widow, the orphan, and the alien. When you get into the New Testament, you know, the Christians are called within the body of Christ mm -hmm. how they dealt with widows. Remember in Acts chapter 4, right? Absolutely. Or rather Acts chapter 6, you know, they, the way they, they dealt with uh, um, orphans and the way they dealt with aliens. So those three categories of people, again and again, God is concerned about. So issue of compassion comes up. So within that context, though, we can disagree about how to apply the law, right, right and show the requisite compassion towards a people group, right, or towards, uh, the, you know, any of those categories. Uh, I would include in that uh, also the poor, right? Yes. So uh, I, I think reasonable Christians can disagree about, okay, does it mean I need to cut taxes? That's the way I help the poor? Or do do I need to uh, increase taxes to create more jobs or create a greater safety net to help the poor? We can disagree on that reasonably, right. but we'll have to start from the foundation of we need to care for the poor, right? Yes. That, that is the Christian ethic, that we need to have compassion for the poor and care for the poor. How we get to that, you know, both you and I can reach different of how we get to that. So the premise, though, back to that question of intellectualism, is that, okay, taking the example of immigration, is that, well, how many people actually know asylum law? How many people know that you can cross from anywhere into this country, and once you get in, you say you claim asylum, you have to be processed. That's international law. Mm -hmm. That's Amer American law, One right? dry foot. Yeah, so, and, and, and I actually did... Um, a short stint immigration practice, and I did asylum law a little bit, and understanding what uh, the what the proof is um, in terms of the I, the um, Immigration and Nationality Act, Section twenty five, and what they have to show a, a you know a fear. Um, although we know that there there are things that that are changing now about the definition, the legal definition of all these things. But how many people actually know that are operating from a premise? that is informed, that then they're able to reach the conclusion that they want to reach. I don't need so to. I saw a meme. <laughs> so there's <laughs> that issue, that there's that strand of anti-intellectualism. Yes. People, are th they think they're thinking critically, and I think they are, but if they're operating from false information and false premises, they, their critical thinking reaches a faulty conclusion. Right. If they're critically thinking, they didn't learn it in our school systems. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> There he is. Yeah. 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 This guy right here. Well, I was homeschooled for a little bit. We both. We yeah. were both were homeschooled for just a little bit, just for getting a little bit of trouble what, in regular school. What books did y'all use, Rebecca? What was it? It was. It was like Jesus has five fish, and then he caught three more. How much? How many fish has he got now? <laughs> yeah. Math class done. Um, it was. It was. It was really good because. Yeah, well, those, those books themselves have their own issues. You know, you oh. brought up earlier American exceptionalism mm -hmm. and that civil religion. I, I would highly recommend if, uh, for those listening, you want to kind of explore the issue of patriotism and how American Christianity is sort of is wedded in, in with this whole idea of patriotism. A mm -hmm. really good book that treats this very well is 
American exceptionalism and civil religion, um, assessing the history of an idea. It's by John Wilsey. Um, he's actually one of my professors at um, at Southern Seminary, and it, it's it's quite quite good. Absolutely, I'm gonna get into that. Yeah. I absolutely will. I I love what you said. I lo I love how you when you you're talking about like the immigration issue and like how many people know. Uh, asylum law and all that mm -hmm. i mean it's it's i mean it's deep it's it's nuanced it's deep there's a yeah. lot there's a lot of layers there there's a lot of stuff to peel back and i and you're you're 100 right i mean you have two sides that that are anti-intellectual that are arguing and both mm -hmm. of them are arguing from a point of uh you know a, a negative point or, or or from not knowing right. but so with that i mean i think that's most people i mean is what's how can we how can we get to common ground then, or is it impossible unless we all just like learn more stuff before we enter progression a conversation? through unlearning? But you but know? that's the thing though, especially as snap case, yes, <laughs> especially <laughs> yes. as Christians, especially as 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 Christians, really, and I and I say this with all seriousness and truth, as as stridently as I can, that we are people of truth, right? Because mm -hmm. we believe what in. The way, the truth, and the life, and Christ yeah. is the truth. We believe our faith is the truth personified, right? Mm -hmm. And we believe the Scripture is true, is infallible, and errant is the Word of God. It is truth. Yes. We are people of truth. Therefore, we should, by the very nature and our calling and the demands of God upon our lives, that we should pursue truth. Truth in our interactions, truth in our engagements, through truths in in in, in the way we think, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so on, on these issues, it astounds me the level of which uh, of how ignorant Christians are, basic stuff, right? Uh, how ignorant they are and how they're operating, right? And jumping to conclusions, setting up straw man arguments and whatnot, jumping, you know, to these strident positions, very ill informed and not having that basic foundation of truth. Mm. Well, and the, the root cause is very similar. Um, so in pop culture, the issue of anti-intellectualism that we're dealing with is based on a populace who consumes most of their information from cable news and the internet, mm. and everyone runs to their flavor of choice, you know, on the right or the left, and then they just, they just swallow everything that's fed to them, and unquestionably, yep. and, um, and, and that's a problem. They, they, don't, they don't actually do their own homework, their own research to come to their own conclusions. They listen to talking heads spout opinion and, and apply that then as facts to their lives. Um, we as believers oftentimes have that same issue. Uh, if you look at most of your churches, you know, you, uh, an inappropriately large percentage show up at church on Sunday. They listen to a man in the pulpit share what he thinks hopefully from God's Word, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, mm -hmm. and then they just walk out the doors and they don't give it another thought. Um, you know, the, the remedy of that for our lives is, is if we claim to be followers of Christ, we have to look unflinchingly at His Word. I mean, mm -hmm. that, is, that, is, you know, that is our truth. Truth is and exclusive. When, yeah. uh, and I, had the, I shared this the other day um, with someone online. It's like, when my personal opinion on an issue mm -hmm. is different than God's Word, guess who gets to change? This guy, like, yep. it's God is not wrong, and yeah. so when there's and so when I come across hard verses having mm -hmm. to do with the treatment of aliens or foreigners, Proverbs twenty two, um, mm -hmm. you know, those those are real issues that I'm grappling with right now as someone who has been, you know, 
very right of center in his political ideology most of his life, a lot of my preconceived ideas, a lot of the things that I had, you know, kind of counted as bedrock of my politics mm-hmm. um, are just currently being dashed to pieces right now because I'm realizing just how much I've just taken at face value mm-hmm. um, as part of a political package and not taking each piece of that and stack that up against God's Word and say, what does God's Word say about this? And my conclusion is, um, my conservative friends think I'm a liberal. You know, my liberal friends think I'm a fascist. You know, <laughs> and I'm just here, I'm just trying to do what God's Word says. Right. And, and yes. there is no political party that that fits cleanly in. Absolutely Because not. they it, it never will. Mm-mm. You know, the, the book in, in Acts, I think it's Acts 16, where... Um, the Bible points out about the Bereans, right? And the Bible says that and the Bereans were more noble than these because they went back to search the scriptures to see if these things were so. So Paul had preached to them, right? And they didn't just take Paul's word, you know, just really like, oh, oh, Paul, yeah, okay, you're right. No, they went back and searched the scriptures to see mm-hmm. if these things were so. That God expects us, we, we our faith, you know, we've come, and, and there's a whole history of, uh, in terms of our faith, and when we talk about American Christianity, where we are um, driven by our emotion, right? And we've we've really come against an intellectual sort of applying our mind to the scriptures, into our lives, into the things, and we're just moved by feelings, right? Um, and, and there's there's no basis for that at all. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. And mind, yes. your mind your is mind. part of that too. So you have to apply your mind to. And when, whenever the Bible talks about some people being noble or good, you right. better pay close attention. Why is it that the Bereans were noble? Why is it that they were especially good uh, over against these other people? Well, because they searched the scriptures, because they actually apply their mind mm. to the love of God. And I think that that's and it has implications not just in the church but society at large. And the unfortunate thing is that the church is reflecting. Society in this sense that there is no objective truth anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything is subject. So it's my truth, my facts, or mm-hmm. alternative facts, or whatever. It's my authentic truth, right? Well, mm-hmm. you know, w- <laughs> if that's your truth and my truth and the, the, the our truths differ, who you know who gets where's the, the standard? Where's and the standard? Where is, is the this standard? This is one of my favorite topics: is relative truth, right? Yeah, so absolutely. there has to be that question. And, you know, the, there's a whole. There's that history of Kierkegaard and Schleiermacher of how we moved away from uh, applying our minds uh, to discerning and divining truth, where it's just, oh, no, just take that leap of faith, right? And mm-hmm. no, um, th- th- of course, th- there's, an, there, there's an element of faith in our faith, in, in right. our belief, but there's also an element wherein we believe because it is true. Right. Right, and, and that has to be carried out into all parts of our life and our engagement in the public square and with each other. Okay, well, bringing that back into the bringing that back into church, um, and what we were talking about a little bit earlier, and knowing that as Christians we have our objective truth, we have we have the Word of God. And do you think it's how how important do you think it is for pastors, church leaders to be lining up? our truth with what's happening in, in society or socially and, and, and these issues. I mean, I mean, do, do, is it the pastor's responsibility to be teaching that on Sunday morning? Um, I mean, how do, how do you view that? Like, yeah, what do you think about those kind of things? Good question. Uh, take it. I think it's, it depends. It's, it's, there's not a clean answer to that. 
I think it's it's very easy to get baited into responding to political situations, which mm-hmm. I think is not good for a pastor to do. Right. But I do believe that we have a responsibility to speak up when there is injustice. Mm-hmm. And so when there is injustice and when there are things taking place that clearly run counter to the Word of God, we do have an obligation to, I think, address that. And so I think the way that you can do that easily, I think when, when there is an event that demands response, mm-hmm. you respond to it. Otherwise, if you're just faithfully preaching God's Word, mm-hmm. you're going to encounter it. Right. And when you do, don't you know, don't, don't sidestep it, it, don't right. rush through it, right. stop, chew on it. You know, and it's okay to say, right. I don't understand exactly what all of this means, but but we trust God, right? and and let's dig into this together, and let's talk about it. So, and, and to that question, I think it, it's very important. I, I do not believe it is a pastor's job, or an elder's job, to, you know, um, kowtow or flow with whatever is in vogue, whatever is in the news, whatever is in the headlines today, because that will throw you off, and you go from one thing to the other, and there's no rhyme or reason, oftentimes, to what's going on and you're doing disservice mm-hmm. to the flock and to the to the body if if that's what informs your you know uh your sermon and your sermon preparation and the work that you're doing in the church all that to say though that when things do happen there should be some sort of response either from the elders or, or f- from the leadership in the church i'm not saying now change your sermon comes saturday something goes down saturday you know, shooting happens saturday you know i need to completely re- rewrite my sermon for sunday no it, it might call for you to take a, a moment of prayer, um, of, of congregational prayer, where you pray about certain something. And if we're, you know, this is one thing that's missing a lot in our uh, liturgy now is that corporate prayer that we should have as part of our, you know, gathering, as our worship gathering, where we are praying for current events, quote-unquote, or current yeah. issues that are happening in our nation, in our community, in our world, right? So that part is, that's got to be part and parcel of that. But over and against that, if, as Sean said, if you're preaching faithfully through the text, I believe in, you know, actually just preaching with the Word of God, right. I believe in textual preaching. If you're pre- preaching through the text, you will get to issues of race and racism. You mm-hmm. get to issue of, of poverty and dealing with the widow, the orphans, and uh, um, and the poor, and the alien. You know, you will get to that issue. And even in really surprising ways, the um, a couple of weeks ago, we, was, we, we just finished a study on the Minor Prophets, and when we got to Zechariah chapter 2, there was this scene where the people of Israel turned to the prophets like, can we stop, you know, doing these sacrifices where we have to essentially remember why God destroyed the temple and, you know, sort of making our amends and whatnot. And God was like, wait, have you actually shown fruits of repentance, you know, for you to now stop? And you know what that reminded me of was that that actually speaks to the issue of race, uh, racial reconciliation in our country in the sense that when white folks are like, let's just move on. Can we just stop going through talking about this and going? Like The application for that uh, of that for me is that, wait a minute, have we actually shown fruits of worthy of repentance wherein we should stop and we can move on and we can do something else? But until, unless and until we show real fruits of repentance, mm-hmm. you know, God still requires of us, you know, a, a godly remorse, uh, contending with the issue, dealing with the issue, real repentance, real forgiveness being extended, 
and that's from Zechariah. You know, and you're <laughs> like, wait a minute, how did that pop out? Mm-hmm. My thing is, if you're preaching faithfully through the text, and of course you're involved in your community, you know the heart of your of your church, of your members, you know what they're going through. The the, the text speak for itself. The question for the pastor for the preachers to be able to apply that text to the life of their church, life of their members, and what's going on in their community. So, um, and that's that's a hard that's the hard job, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that application part. And, but I think if you're being faithful, I mean, once you get to Ephesians chapter two and racial reconciliation, unity within diversity in the body of Christ, that's unavoidable. When you, you would get be, to I don't, you can't get through things. any book, book in the New Testament without encountering something that's right. going to make you stop. Right. You know. Right. On on that topic, it's it's woven throughout. Right. Yeah, your the the newspaper should not um, drive your sermon. Um, what should drive your sermon is obviously your study, uh, your right. time with the Lord, mm-hmm. and then of course uh, I forgot who it was that said it, but a, a good a good and faithful pastor must have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? Because that does inform how you apply the truths of the Scripture to the very life of. Um, of, of the church of your people that's, that's what I, I mean that's what that's i like really to see too. Good. like not like you said through the text you're not skipping things but you are you're able to apply it and contextualize it to what's going on in in our in the world and in our society and and i think that's missed or it's either done way too little or it's done way too right. much and you know people are you know i know it in our church it's always you can say one thing and apply it to what's going on and right. people are like you know leave that stuff off you right. know you'll right. get 10 people that tell you to leave that stuff off the right. stage. Uh, and then, or if you don't say something, you get 10 people that said you should have spoke up about this, right. you know? So um, I know it's a balance and it's, it's kind of hard to find. Right. And I think, I think a lot of it's just listening to what God puts on your heart right. as a pastor, or as a right. church leader, as an elder or whatever. And, um, and really just trying to be true to that and, right. and, and to that conviction and just, you know, through that loving the people in your church. Right. And like you said, knowing what's going on with them. And I love that. Um, you said that with, I want to go back r- real quick again to the the multi-ethnic church and and you're a, if you're a pastor you're going to start a church mm-hmm. um, you're going to start a church in Tallahassee it's a town that is um, that's multi-ethnic what are you, what are you doing to what are you doing to bring both uh, both sides into the same building well one I believe in the old school neighborhood church right. Um, that a church be a place where it's walking distance, right? Oftentimes, you know, we drive to church and all that. Then there's nothing against that per se, but a neighborhood church um, and and my church, the make of my church will reflect the neighborhood that I'm in, hopefully, right? Uh, What I'm doing to bring people together, the first and major thing I I believe in, in, in multi-ethnic, multicultural churches is having a diverse leadership, right? Sometimes we want multi-ethnic churches mm-hmm. and whatnot, or multi, yeah, we want multi-ethnic churches, but we don't want a multicultural church. There's a difference between that. Multi-ethnic is that you have the face, you have the faces there, but you don't have the voice, you know, of mm, right. black and brown yeah. um, people in terms of in leadership, right? Uh, and things like that. I heard uh, one one of my friends, I'm just starting to know him, and he was saying that they had to leave the church they were at and go to another church he had adopted. He has a very diverse family. And uh, the new church that they got to after the service, you just saw his son, his black son's face just 
light up and beam up. And it was like, he didn't know black people could be Christians, right? Or that even black people could be pastors, right? And to see that, and that would, that's exactly why he had to go to another church so that he can, that, that boy can see black folk in leadership, preaching, teaching the sound word of God, sound doctrine, to see that he is also part of God's redemptive story, that he's not an afterthought. He's not just, you know, the kind of the patio. Oh, you're so cute. Welcome to our church. But, you know, I, I've been in my church for four years now. Right? I go to majority white church and for specifically the reason pursuing racial reconciliation. But every now and again, every other and I'm a deacon in, in the church. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty vocal. I'm out there every now and again. Someone will still come and, you know, welcome me to the church. I'm like, I'm. <laughs> I teach, I preach, I'm a deacon, all this. I've been in this church, you know. So that that sense where they're just kind of in, in, in the back, they, they're the face, right? Oh, we're welcoming, but you're not really multicultural. Multicultural in the sense that no one culture predominates in mm. that church, right? That everybody is a little bit uncomfortable, right? My vision of, of a multicultural church will be somewhere where, you know, folk could stand up in, in the old, you know, black tr- black church tradition. There's a call and response. You know, the preacher has got a certain style, right, that, mm-hmm. that fits in that. And then the next Sunday, you know, another preacher will get up and maybe he's more professorial or whatnot. And, and it's kind of cool and calm. But folks mm-hmm. can still stand up and still say, hey, man, you better preach on, preacher. You know, and you get folks like, wait a minute, I'm not quite comfortable with that. And other folks are like, wait, the songs that we're singing, you know, are a little different. And this song that we're singing this week or this song and we're mixing it all together where we're reflecting the different cultures right all of those have a voice in our liturgy in our leadership um and in the say of how the church goes right and, and all of those people have a voice they're not just faces in the background but they're actually voices within the, that body itself and everyone's a little uncomfortable and you know not not quite i don't think church is supposed to be a comfort zone for you. It's First of all, every club. time you leave, it's not a country club. Every time you leave church, I hope you're challenged. I hope that word came out so strong that you, you know, you're either weeping before the face of God or praising mm-hmm. God. You mm-hmm. know, and th- that's what church. I think every Sunday should do uh, for us, but also bring us all together at the table, knowing that we are redeemed uh, through Christ's blood, and that people who were once enemies, right. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down that now there's no longer, you know, uh, slave, no free Scythian or Greek or Jew. We are now one in Christ and the Lord is in all and above all. So. Amen. 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 (laughs) Is this something that um, is this something that kind of has to happen at the onset? Because and the reason I ask that is, um, I, I mean, I love that idea and I love, you know, especially like our church leadership has to be multicultural and we have, you know, you want you want people of all um, of all races to be seen preaching the word of God. And I mean, I love that idea, but kind of like with, like with youth ministry, I think the one way we see churches mess that up is like, Hey, we need to attract younger people to our church. What do we do? And like, they're, they're making just like horrible decisions and they're blowing more <laughs> right. smoke from the stage right. and there's more lights. We'll play these songs. And you know, the young people are just going to come in, in, in droves to our church. Mm-hmm. But I think the same mistakes can be made if like, Hey, we, Hey, we need to make sure we're hiring um, you know, a certain uh, we need to hire a few black guys and some brown guys and mm-hmm. some Asian guys or whatever the case right. may be. So, I mean, is this something that has to kind of just happen at the onset and just pr- and we pray for this multiculturalism in our church, or is this something that like we you feel that we really can like have our thumb on and and really help like kind of dictate that you know intentionally? 
I think it has to be informed again by the community that you're in. So if you have, if you see your, if, again, if you're engaged in evangelism in your in your community and you see it, more Hispanics coming into your church and being members of your church, I think it would behoove. I think it's wisdom to say, okay, right. where can we train train mm-hmm. up, up from amongst you know our our members, you know. A, a Hispanic brother who's faithful to the word and all, it meets all the biblical criteria in First Timothy, was it Second Timothy? I always get them mixed up. Chapter two, you know, and, and is able to come come out here um, and, and and you know fill the position of an elder pastor. Um, so I I don't think it's you know affirmative action in the sense that let me just find the first black right. or brown face. That no, the person actually has to meet the biblical qualifications. So if they meet the biblical qualification, they are qualified. I I don't think it's wrong to say well being intentional about saying we need to get a black brother up here or a Hispanic brother or an Asian brother. I don't think that that's wrong to intentionally set out to do that, especially, again, if you're seeing that your church in the demographics of your church, uh, um, as you're doing your job in evangelizing your community, is getting to that, right? Um, so that th- you've got to be intentional from the outset. I don't, th- again... I mean, Paul said to to the Jews, I, I was one of the, to the to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, I was this in order that I might win, you know, mm-hmm. some for the Lord. And I think in that, I mean, when when the um, in Acts chapter six, when the issue with the widows came up, they didn't just say, "Oh, you know, you guys just deal with it." When they actually appointed, and when they appointed deacons. Uh, the the issue was with the Hellenistic um, Jews, right? Mm-hmm. The the people they appointed were what Hellenistic Jews, <laughs> right? Stephen, yes. those were Greek names that mm-hmm. they appointed. So they appointed Greeks, right? Hellenistic Jews, or or um, over in the in the in the new created diaconate to deal with issues in that community. So I see nothing wrong in being intentional. And I think there's biblical warrant for it mm-hmm. uh, to be intentional in that area. Um, so if it, so for example, if uh, a church, if my church, you know, is wanted to intentionally pursue racial reconciliation, the first thing has got to be you got to preach the Bible. I think the way you you pastor and you form the consciences of the people is by just being faithful to the text, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't start with programming. That right. no, I don't right. believe in that. Yeah. That it is the word of God that forms the conscience of the people. So you start with that, and then start applying the word that you're preaching from the pulpit in real and intentional ways, right? Evangelizing the community, mm-hmm. going out and adding people, and then yes, I'm um, being intentional about about finding, about appointing some because they're there. It's not that they aren't there. It's just you know, sometimes they ignore. They're they're the face, but not the voice, right? So you have to be intentional by reaching out, okay, and, and identifying and appointing those brothers who can fill the position of elders and say, okay, and if a position comes open, I'm not saying fire your staff, right, in order to make it, but if a position comes open, I think it's right for uh, the leadership to say intentionally, okay, this is what we're about. We want someone who, one, is qualified, mm-hmm. and two, um, is um, of a different ethnicity to kind of reflect that that multiculturalness absolutely agree 100 percent. it's kind of like when my wife came here to the church yeah i mean well i I know i know at our church we've it's never been something that yeah we pursued but when the opportunity presented itself Mm -hmm. we always jumped on it because Mm -hmm. we thought like what a what a what a great opportunity to have that um that diversity on our staff and you know and and it's and it's and it's always been 
it's always worked out so well, you know. I mean, I think that um, it's something that we've been blessed to have. And, like, yeah, we hired um, Stephen's wife. She couldn't she even in. speak English when they hired her. And she worked in our children's ministry, and it was just – it was a blessing to all of us because we were able to um, – we were able to learn from her. You yeah. know, obviously she was able to learn from us some things, and we we had this great relationship. So but I've always kind of wondered that. But so the guy who – the guy whose church is – or uh, the guy whose church is in a white neighborhood – uh, he's a white pastor. His church is uh, 100% white, but that's the community that he's serving. Mm-hmm. He should be content with that. He's teaching. I mean, he's he's teaching the word faithfully. He's um, his, his people. He's discipling his people. They're growing. Um, that that should be okay. I don't think he, should, he needs to force the issue necessarily, but I think there are ways he can still form the conscience of his people on issues of race, diversity, and racial reconciliation and unity within the body of Christ. I think he needs to, you know, preach through the text, and when it comes up, when it, when it's applicable, right. he should bring it up, you know, because guess what? If he doesn't, what's going to form the conscience of his people? Is it going to be Fox News? Is it going to be CNN? Is it going to be... No, it ha- the Bible has got to form the conscience of you. So if you're preaching faithfully through the text, but another practical way, I think, a pastor and a mono-ethnic um, community can pursue racial reconciliation is to identify churches, you know, who that are ethnically diverse, to partner with those churches, mm. to engage with those churches, to have cross programming with those churches. Yeah. Um, another way is to send out missionaries to ethnically diverse um, places in, in either your state, the nation, or the world. You know, send out uh, missionaries to different ethnic. Uh, uh, or ethnically diverse contexts, right? Um, invite um, pastors of, of different ethnicities to preach your church so that your members can see someone of a different ethnicity preaching and teaching the Word of God. There are multiple ways you can still pursue the issue, even in a mono-ethnic context, while uplifting you know, the glory of God and showing that the face of God is is the color of the rainbow that God created is the and also prepare you. I think another thing is I always tell this to Sean, like when we get to heaven, my white brothers and sisters are gonna be shocked, <laughs> right? To find that they are not the majority. That the songs that we're gonna be singing is not just gonna be CCM, right? <laughs> that the language we're gonna be speaking is not just gonna be English, right? That the vast majority of the cloud of witnesses of mm. the body of Christ throughout history, right, and even to modern day, is non-white and non-English speaking. Does that mean so, we won't be clapping on the one and three <laughs> in heaven? <laughs> so, no, I believe that when God regenerates and gives us a perfect body, he's going to give all y'all rhythm, too. So That'd be nice. That's going to be part of that. I hope so. Finally. <laughs> it's going to be part of that perfection. For the record, I play bass. <laughs> <laughs> so when we get to heaven, there is going to be that diversity of voices, of faces, of languages. We'll all understand each other, and it will all be a glorious and a sweet sound unto the Lord. But I'm thinking like that. Why don't we start doing that on the here and now? Why don't we start dress rehearsing for go. that eventuality um, when we get to the other Praying side of eternity? Pray- Pastors exactly. love to talk about there is a scripture about the body of Christ and how you know not everyone's a nose, not everyone's a knee. You know, we forget that when we talk about race and ethnicity. I mean. God made those differences. There is something that we're intended to get. You know, we, we, are, we were created to live in community. We were created yeah. to be dependent upon other people. And I think that extends across racial and cultural lines also. I think, you know, to go back to the analogy of if you're um, in a 
an all-white church in an all-white area, you know, if for no other reason, you're just missing out on a lot of life if you don't get to experience the differences that other cultures can bring, whether that is, you know, black culture or whether that's, you know, Hispanic culture or any other culture, just anyone that's different than you. Mm-hmm. Just it enriches your life and broadens um, just all facets of you know, this And time you learn here. so much more about the Lord himself right, through right. this. I mean, I, I think this would also let's not make it all about you know, what white folks have to do. This also applies to black churches and Asian churches and Hispanic churches. That there, There is a need for these churches also to pursue racial reconciliation. Of course, it comes from a different standpoint in terms of, you know, what, what they're dealing with. And the again, given the historical context of, of the need for these churches, um, that the, the, there's a different sort of starting point and approach but that still doesn't obviate um, that need and that responsibility, okay? There is a responsibility that these churches also have to form the consciences of, of, of their people um, to do those things, invite a diverse, you know, preacher, uh, a, a white preacher to your pulpit to preach, you know, go and reach out, do cross-programming, and do different things in different contexts, right, um, to show, again, that diversity that needs to be. Ultimately, it's not a knock against mono-ethnic churches, but it, one, if you're in a multicultural setting and you're not, I, I think that's a sign of, of, of trouble, of problems. But even if you are, are you actively pursuing um, racial reconciliation within your context? That you're not just leaving you know, souls in the, pulpit, in, the, in the pews that are seared against this issues, that are not being formed and conformed um, by Scripture uh, to, and enlightened to see what God's demands are um, for, for these things. That's, yeah, that's awesome. I, I want to go back to one more thing, and this is something that you, and, and with, um, I don't want to take too long. I'll just I, go I for it, Zach. Forever, but just back at the beginning, I, I, I like something that you said, and I, I kind of want to see basically if what, the way I'm interpreting it is lining up with what you meant when you said that it's not, um, it's not race that causes racism, but racism that causes race. Right. Racism created race. Created race. What yeah. did you mean by that? It's that, well, first of all, greed, uh, the, the underlying, I think, main sin here. You know how people talk about, you know, uh, what is it? It's not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, that phrase is somewhat reductive, but it's also true in the sense that the underlying sin for the issue of race is greed, right? So that if you look at the history of this country and when you needed a pliable workforce um, that, that was able to work within you know, um, hot, swampy um, areas to build the agricultural base of this country um, and everything that, and the, the import of Africans, um, enslaved Africans to this country for that. And now the question was, well, how do we deal with these people? What, what do we, how do we, you know, cre- essentially create a permanent underclass, right? Um, mm-hmm. What is it that we do? Because I don't know how many people we don't teach this again in school anymore. Bacon's Rebellion, you know, that that was a, a collection of white uh, indentured servants and black, you know, uh, um, indentured servants, and they, they were fighting. And then what happened after that was they said, wait a minute, we need to break this up, right? Yeah. And so what you started seeing now is they were defining, creating um, whiteness, defining what is white. 
uh, over against what is black, right? And so because of this drive to keep a permanent underclass, to make these certain people work and essentially make them a, a property, chattel property, the way to be able to rationalize that be able to be able to say that it's okay to leave these people group as permanent property is to say, wait, they are a different kind. They're not human. They're not yeah. like me, not like us, right? We are white, right? It's a different class from black. And, and the Negro is of a different, he's a subhuman. And so you see after that development of, of a lot of uh, um, psychoanalytic, pseudo-biological, and even theological um, reasons for uh, the creation of race um, and and to be able to rationalize the need for a, a chat, chattel property. And so once you created that class, once you define race out of essentially a need uh, out of greed, then um, um, racism essentially, uh, greed tied with racism is what introduced race. Uh, we often think about, oh, it's we, we accept almost as as a given that race is a thing, right? You know, there's a black race and the white race. Well, no, it's <laughs> it's not. It, it's a, it's a construct. It's a construct that was specifically defined, uh, uh, um, designed for a specific purpose, which is to create a permanent um, underclass, working underclass of property that would be able to. Uh, serve the growing and the expansive land that is these new uh, United States, this new America, this new world, to be able to work that land and and, right. and create a new. Um, so we see it in the military. We see it. We see minorities being used in the military for this way. It seems that we always have to have some form of slavery mm -hmm. to to continue what we're doing and to continue globalization. Do you agree with that? That we have to, that they that basically in the society we live in, it's, I mean that's just. I, I it's think just it, awful. It, it morphed into different things. For example, again after after you know the Civil War, after the Emancipation, the Thirteenth Amendment, they had to come up with a new way to essentially yeah. say, well, how can we still get this work class? So you had Jim Crow not mm -hmm. develop, right? And then yep. even there, you had vagrancy laws, and you can't stay here. And you had you know in certain in southern states creating really harsh. Felonies, like for example, the, the idea about you know um, the restoration of rights, um, mm -hmm. civic rights to uh, ex-felons, you know that's actually grounded in um, post-reconstruction uh, Jim Crow racism. You know this idea. Well, if we mark these people permanently as felons, you know they then you rob them obviously of their civic rights. They cannot be engaged. They can't come together as people and vote. You know they, themselves into into power and things like that. So, but oftentimes when people hear that, they're like, "Wait a minute, did we like there's some nefarious person behind this? You know, like this wizard of Oz that creating and divining these things?" I don't think that's necessarily it. I, well, there are some of that, but I do think it's it comes out of this kind of basic fallenness of greed, mm -hmm. of hatred and separation that then you need to mark a certain people um, and what you now you have, you know, um, uh, convict leasing where you had, you know, in Jim Crow and, and you have a large criminalization of the black body of of the of black people once slavery was gone they, they, there's got to be another way so you have in the 14th amendment or rather in the 13th amendment um this um this clause that said except for in the case of um high crimes and misdemeanors right so you you can 
there's no slavery except for except exactly. right so that exception now allowed again for creating new crimes out of just nowhere to now again relegate that and mark the the black body and when you talk about the criminalization of black folk in this country and all mm-hmm. of that again stuff that stuff has a historical context if you trace it back there's a reason for all this well and the reason i was asking and forgive me if i'm oversimplifying this um is be, well simple as that yeah is uh and that's what it's it was the greed it was the hatred of racism that ultimately i mean that caused us to see race mm-hmm. and the, and the, the, i thought that was interesting because and i mean i, I may be completely out of line or, or you may disagree with this but like with with i have a an eight-year-old and a four-year-old and my wife and i we when when our son jack was born we we kind of made this decision that we never really identified race to him like we would never we, we would never refer like hey a black guy, black mm-hmm. girl, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we just said, Hey, obviously he's going to figure it out. Like he can clearly mm-hmm. see that there's something, there's right. something different, but we didn't want to just like, we didn't want to label it as like, Oh, he's a black guy, white guy. We, I mean, we didn't say white either. You right, know, we didn't right. say, we didn't really label any of that. Right. And to me, that was kind of, it, it, when you, when you made that statement earlier tonight, I, I kind of, I went back to that. Cause I said, you know, I, it wasn't that obviously you're going to see that there's differences. You're going to mm-hmm. see that, um, that, that, that somebody's skin is different. You're going to see that somebody's got um, a different culture, but we didn't feel like we didn't want to label that. And I felt mm-hmm. like that's kind of what, you know, in, in a sense that labeling was the racism mm-hmm. that caused people to see the race. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I thought that was interesting because that's a decision that we made right. and we still do, you know, and now that he's, now that he's in school, he's in second grade. Now, of course, like he, he, he you know, he'll, he'll and, he, he and it was funny because the way he interpreted it was mm-hmm. he just knew colors. And it was always like, he always said, it was the brown person, a beige person, <laughs> or a like white person was like an, it was an Asian because their skin was the you know really it was, he just like really called it he was like yeah he's got the he's got the browner skin than us or you know the beige guy like we're beige and it was interesting because right. we never wanted to put those labels on it because we never right. wanted him to see it as like or at least early on like hey, right. hey oh you know oh yeah black guy white guy whatever the case may be and so I, I just thought that I think it can be a challenge sometimes for for families um, for Gen Xers and millennials of who they want to be conscious, they, they, they don't want to propagate prejudices, and in knowing how to position some of that, you know, in raising your children, um, you know, of not intentionally introducing stereotypes, but at the same time, you have to acknowledge it. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, it can lead to, you know, I mean, kids always create, you know, uncomfortable situations. Wherever you have children, you have, <laughs> you yeah. know, when my daughter was, uh, gosh, she must have been four years old, maybe three years old. Mm-hmm. You know, she and my wife were at Publix, and um, and there was a middle-aged black woman in front of us in line, and my wife looks down, and Kara is literally petting her leg, and she just looks up. And she says, "I really like your brown skin," <laughs> and 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 the woman, of course, she, she thought it was you know sweet, but it was one of those things of like kids left to their own, like they recognize the difference, but right. it's no, there's no malice right. in that mm-hmm. that that is something that is we that we teach our children either right. actively or passively and so mm-hmm. i think a lot of white families sometimes struggle with how do i insh- how do i train my child up correctly right you don't uh, want to be colorblind because right. color is something to be so yeah right. exactly yeah. you know and for us it was never a matter of being colorblind it was never a yeah. matter of not talking about 
um, issues when they came up. I remember when he was in kindergarten and he got um, it was it was uh, Martin Luther King's holiday, mm-hmm. and he was he and he asked he was like, well, why am I not going to school today? And I was like, I was able to teach him right. and show him and, and and teach him about what that day meant and who Martin Luther King was, and we read some books and right. like the whole day because it was just him and I at home that day. But and it was never about like yeah trying to be colorblind or trying to like oh you know right. be, be weird about it. But it was like hey. W- w- from your parents, we don't want to label this right. like at, at a young age. And you know what? My mom told me when I was when I was younger um, that I had that whole like, you're black, you know, said it. And she was mortified. I said it to a guy at church, <laughs> you know, when I was like five years old because I just was like, it got to me. You know, ne- neither of my kids have ever done that. Like, we've never had that because it's always just, hey, they, you know, it was their friend. And it was never like, oh, that's a, a black friend or it was a white friend. It was just like, right. that's my friend. That's who I hang out with. So it's just, it was interesting. I, I loved hearing that, you know, yeah. that that racism created race. Yeah. You know, or it was, it was cool. It was one of my yeah. pastors um, always tells this joke about his son where they were talking um, and he's got six of them. And they were talking and one of them said, oh, the black guy. And they run into the room like, what? Where did you say? Where did you learn that from? And and they were just, you know, apoplectic about <laughs> we didn't teach this to you. Apparently, he was talking about the Black Ranger, you know, right. that was the black guy. Right, so, right. right. But, and, and I understand, you know, the fear of my white brothers and sisters about kind of, you know, uh, um, not necessarily avoiding, but how do you, you know, uh, talk to your kids? How do you talk to them about this issue about race? And I, I would, the first thing I would uh, say is that you can't, you should not. Of course, you can't. It's easier for white folks to avoid talking about race and to not deal with race. Um, than it is for black folk. Like, you know, we have to encounter, we deal with it every day. So, you know, um, while you can avoid it, I don't think you should, especially as Christians, because we have to deal with these things head on. Um, And the reason is because just in the same way as the pastor has a duty to form the conscience of um, of his people, of his church, parents have a duty to form the conscience of their kids. Just like I don't want society or the school system to teach my kid about sex, you know, that I am going to teach my kid, of course, in age-appropriate ways, right, Mm -hmm. as informed by Scripture about sex, right? Right on. So um, Mm -hmm. when even as my five-year-old comes, he notices it different in terms of his genitalia. You know, I'm like, we talk about it in age-appropriate ways, y'all. But in that way, I need to form the cons, have that duty, that sacred duty and calling and responsibility from God to form the conscience of my child in that way. And the same thing on the issue of race and the issue of, you know, again, remember those three characters, the widows, orphans, uh, the poor, and the alien, you know, uh, forming their conscience. So we have to talk about it. I'll give you a great resource that just came out um, for folks who are listening. Curtis Woods and Jarvis Williams uh, wrote The Color of the Gospel. There's a family set. Um, it's one for kids, you know, how to talk to your kids about race and racism. Um, it, it's really great. Color of the Gospel. So if you want like a real resource about how to talk to your kids, get that book. And the other thing, you know, and I know this is not what you guys were saying. You guys decry this, that oftentimes my white brothers and sisters really get into this whole colorblind thing, right? And really, we often even also preach colorblind theology. And there is no biblical basis for that. We see that people's cultures, people's identities, ethnic identities, 
were were highlighted in scripture. Paul talks about different people groups in scriptures and and how he he specifically targeted or went after this particular people yes. group and all of that. So we see that highlighted in scripture, um, but we also see that even just a, a proper hermeneutic and and theology um, calls for us to celebrate the diversity that God has created, right? That mm-hmm. these aren't just there by accident, that God yes. created this, right? And that we should celebrate, we should enjoy it, and we should, again, um, it points to our God who has a creative mind. Like, has anybody ever thought, like, how did all these cultures and people groups and ethnicities, how, where did this come from? Like, yes. that is from God's mind. Yes. That creative mind. Like, we should celebrate that as a reflection of the beauty and majesty of our God. So we need to tell our kids that. We need mm-hmm. to celebrate for our kids and, and for them to see that and also might I add, to inform your kid about, especially in the American context, as you're telling them to love America and raise them to be patriotic, (laughs) tell them about the issue. Because it is part of American history, racism in this country. That when they have black and brown friends, right? You know, there's this article that that my wife sent out to our our group. I'm getting goosebumps. Um, (laughs) That, you know, I need my, the white parents of my son's, friends, you know, to tell their kids um, how to interact with my boy and how to protect my boy, right? So obviously one thing I tell my boy, you can't do certain things that your white friends do. I don't like my kid play with um, toy guns, you know, Mm -hmm. in in public or even at home. I'm just against getting, you know... Tamir Rice, you know, um, that, that all, all of that. So I don't, I don't, but, but also there's a way that I would hope that my white brothers and sisters will teach their, their kids also that, Hey, when you all get into a car, when you become teenagers and you're driving, you need to be aware, you know, there, there's a certain thing that you can't do when your, your black friend is in the car. You need to be aware of him, you know, to, to guard that there's a way that law enforcement will react to him that they won't to you. You know, and again, this hear me, I'm not giving knock against our LEOs. No. Right. But that they you you have to be aware of these things in order to respond. And also when your friend comes to you by wait, th- there was some re- uh, interaction that rubbed him off the wrong way. Like I don't need you to be second guessing I me. Mean, that's one thing that in high school, I remember my friends were like, well, maybe it really you're overthinking or you're overreacting, you know, like they, they would just sign it off. No, I need you to engage with that, to be there with your friend, to love your friend in that position, to also stand up for your friend in that position. You know, so there's a responsibility that comes with being friend to my black son, you know, that I would hope that my white brothers and sisters will teach their sons and daughters as well to take on that responsibility. Because whether we like it or not, we live in a racialized society, right? Pointing it out doesn't make you, it's like saying you go to an oncologist, right? And you say, because the oncologist is the one that found the tumor, that's the reason I have, you know, the cancer. Me diagnosing it is not what created the cancer. The cancer was already there. People think if I talk about race, that's racist. No, <laughs> the issue is already there. I'm merely talking about the issue that is already present. The cancer is already present. So mm. let's not avoid it. Let's 
meet it head on mm-hmm. with the liberating truth of the gospel and the uniting word of God that, that, that has redeemed mo- all of us and made us brothers and sisters in Christ and also given us the responsibility to bear the burdens, right, of one another because that's mm. how you love one another. You need to bear the burdens, mourn with those who mourn, bear the burdens of those who bear it. So I would hope that my, my, the friends of my black son will bear the burdens of his blackness in America. And I would hope that his parents would teach him that as well. Dude, that's so great, that's man. That's beautiful. Gosh. I just got goosebumps, too, yeah. and bibli- very biblical. That is just absolutely incredible. I mean, it definitely makes me think, like, of, of how, yeah, I mean, those conversations to have with my kids, right. you know, like you said, even as teenagers, you know, just... At first, I thought when you said um, when you get into your black friend's car, I thought you were going to say, "Don't ever touch the radio." <laughs> <laughs> like, Got to make sure. Like, right. All right, that one's good. Yeah, but um, like when no. you're in the mall, okay? for right. example, you're all together in the mall, and you see the, you know, I've, I've had it. You can tell. Ask all your black friends this. We've all had this experience that you've been tailed right. by mm. the mall cop or whoever is the attendant in the store, right? Like, be aware of that. Notice that. Like, but the the white friends of my black, they need to. <laughs> Again, bear that burden with him and to protect him, to guard him, because it, this is the phrase, you know, and folks get all tizzy about the word privilege, but, you know, use that, again, use that privilege to support, to help, to bear the burden, and to love um, your your friend. Dude, that's so good. Man. We're going to leave it at that, man. That that I Thank you so much for being here, and I just love hearing that at the end, just a, a way to just to instill those values in our own children. And just, I love that because for me, for, for me and for my family, that's, that's very important right. growing up here. I mean, I grew up in, um, I grew up in the South here and my parents, you know, I was born in Las Vegas. My parents are from Oklahoma, but when we moved here, you know, I mean, it's not that they, they didn't have a, a racist bone in their body, but right. those things weren't taught to me. Right. And right. then, you know, you, you see things or you hear your friends talking and as you grow up and you're, and it was, it was shocking. I didn't mm-hmm. know you guys right. were dealing with this. I right. didn't know this was going on. This was happening. So it's something cool to hear. And I, I, I definitely want to keep, I mean, I'm doing that now. And when they're in elementary school, it's real easy yeah. because yeah. you know, their friends problems aren't, they don't have, they don't have the problems, yeah. but as they yeah. get older they and those problems older. present themselves, yep. I'm looking forward to doing that. But same here. Fumi, Sean, thank you guys Fumi, so much. Sean, yep. you guys yeah. are absolutely beautiful and brilliant. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For, thank, thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you yeah. for really. having us. And really, I want to appreciate you all um, pressing into this issue. What we need more in the church is brothers like y'all pressing into this, talking about it, engaging with it. Uh, but ultimately, it's all for the glory of God. And uh, if you don't hear anything else I've said today, I want you to hear that um, these are my brothers. These white brothers are my brothers. In Christ, above all else, right? Um, it is not my my skin color, my ethnicity, or anything that is my chief identity. My chief identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. If you remember in, in, in scriptures, um, in Philippians uh, chapter three, when Paul talks about he gives out his you know ethnic identity. He says, "I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, study on the Gamaliel." Uh, um, circumcised on the eighth day, all these different things. He gives that his ethnic identity. And then he says that I count all these things as loss Loss. for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that for me, you know, I have more in common with my tatted up, skinhead looking white brother, (laughs) uh, Sean over here, than I do with a black person marching down the street with his fist up saying Black Lives Matter. 
I have more in common with Sean because he's a Christian, he's my brother, and because Christ, who is in us, is above all else. So I hold that um, much more important, and, and I would hope that us seeing each other as brothers then compels us you know, to bear each other's burdens and to uh, um, laugh with us and to rejoice mm. with us and to mourn with us, and um, that is all part of it. But ultimately, Christ is above all else, and I counted all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Nothing else yeah, to say. Incredible. Yeah, Mic drop. Out.